Welcome everyone to the Retail Corner Podcast from Proxima 360. The purpose of our podcast is to bring a relaxed and educational environment to discuss the current retail landscape, best of breed products, and retail business best practices. You will always find us talking with business users, technical resources, and retail experts on how they are and where they are headed. everybody to the Retail Corner Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about how Omnichannel has become the hero of new sectors in retail. And in order to do that, we have none other than Jim Loden, who has been formerly Vice President of Franchise Stores and Operations at Radio Shack, and also Vice President of Omnichannel at Emster Tile, and currently he's consulting as Chief Revenue Officer at Fractional. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Doing phenomenal. Thank you so so much for being with us today. So, Jim, I mean, you've you've had a lot of experience. You've been in the business. You've been with Radio Shark, some IT, some technology, you know, consumer goods, and now you're at Fractional, and then that's great. So, tell me, you know, when it comes to Omni Channel, what what do you guys see as the new challenges coming up? How are you guys adapting to to companies like Amazon, Wayfair, right? Those companies that are really reacting when it comes to Omni Channel, and I think a lot of retailers are trying to step up their plate in order to be a, yeah. a part, you know? So I think there's a, a couple of different ways you can look at it. One, um, you can you can make Amazon what I call a frenemy, right? So half friend, half enemy. Um, you can participate mm -hmm. in their, you can participate in their marketplace and leverage the opportunity to get in front of hundreds of millions of people and sell on their platform. Um, or you can go the route of private label, which a lot of people are doing. Um, some people call it white labeling, where you go direct to the manufacturer and create your own label and your own brand. Um, therefore, you don't see it on Amazon. You don't have to compete about it. You don't have to compete with all the other marketplaces that are out there like Target and Walmart and eBay, et cetera. Um, you know, so that's really... The two main focuses I see, um, you can also restrict it from going on Amazon. The thing with um, looking and playing against Amazon is it, it's a tricky um, situation, right? Um, once you open those floodgates, sometimes it's hard to shut them off, right? And mm -hmm. so if you're a, let's just say you're a public company and you start selling on Amazon, uh, it probably won't be long before you're doing tens of millions of dollars with them. And and that's a good thing. Um, usually the margins are razor thin. Um, the operating costs are very high. The penalties for late ship, miss ship, miss packages are very high. So the net profit is very, very low. The problem with Amazon is once you open those floodgates as a public company, your shareholders and stockholders, uh, they never want you to shut it off because they see that top <laughs> it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. But the reality is it affects your net profit pretty dramatically if you do it wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and once you get a product up on Amazon, depending on which manner you do it, you, you can find yourself not even dictating the pricing on the product. Now, in many cases, you can, 
But if product starts sitting around, if it's in their inventory too long, um, they're either going to ship it back to you, start charging you storage fees, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, if you're trying to sell that same product into, say, Lowe's or Home Depot or Best Buy or Wayfair, um, you know, the first place they're going to go is to Amazon to see what the price is. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you look at these other retailers, doesn't matter who it is. It, it depends on the category, Carlos, but they're going to look to make somewhere to 30 to 50 points in, in profit. And if you're already operating on net, you know, single digit profitability on Amazon, it makes it almost impossible to go elsewhere. Um, so the other way you can combat it is you can have Amazon only SKUs, which I've seen in bigger companies. So mm-hmm. let's just say, you sell, let's just say you sell TVs. You'll make four specific TVs that those model numbers you're only going to sell on Amazon. You may sell the other TVs to Best Buy, right? And you won't have to worry about the two competing against each other. And you can maintain your margin in both. You can maintain your margin in both channels. Oh, I like that. That's a great suggestion. You know, I think for for a lot of our listeners out there, right? I think it's very, very important the idea that you just mentioned. A lot of times you can create product based on the market where you're going to be sitting in, right? Your target audience and also the marketplace, right? And, and you see that also with brick and mortar, right? with the outlet locations, right? A lot of times, a lot of retailers that will create merchandise specifically for their outlet stores, you know? So before Radio Shack, I was at CompUSA. Mm-hmm. And we used to call it derivative SKUs. So a vendor would create a SKU for us and a SKU for Best Buy, and in, in the old days, a SKU for Circuit City. And the laptop would be almost identical, but it would be this one had more memory. This one had a better video card. So it was just one little tweak. So when the manufacturer had it going down their production lines, the only thing they were swapping out was one thing. So it made it very efficient for them. You know, they could ship us 2,500 laptops, Best Buy 2,500 laptops, and Circuit City 2,500 laptops, and we never had to compete against each other. Nice. No, no, no. And and also, you're creating products based on your target audience, right? So, which right. makes it even more favorable and more consumers are willing to purchase that item. And I, and I think when it comes to that, you know, how have you overcome, like, all the modern challenges with supply chain, right? Like, multi multinational sourcing, right? Because obviously, as you were saying, right, they, they're in the warehouse, they're creating the products, but now it's so open, right? It's this multinational, right? You can get it from all over. It's really worldwide. Yeah, I think that's how you overcome the supply chain issues, right? So in my recent um, company that I just left, you know, we, we sourced from over 30 different countries. And you had to be able to do that because you know, a particular type of tile, for instance, coming out of a specific country, mm-hmm. they they could run out of that very quickly if there was a a run on it by, you know, by by somebody else. And so you being able to flip the switch and say, okay, I'm going to get this from Greece instead of Italy, um, allowed us to stay in stock and allowed us to fulfill our customers' needs, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things, um, one of the things you see, and it doesn't matter what the industry is, but specifically during COVID, with the logistics and supply dan- supply chain issues, 
um, whoever has the better supply chain is going to gain market share, right? Absolutely. And if you go if you go back and look at when we when we went into first went into COVID, you know, in the consumer electronics industry, they were hit really hard with supply chain issues. So the the distributors and the retailers that were willing to take um, some mitigated risk and go a little heavier on inventory uh-huh. grew their grew their sales crazy, right? And it was a pretty um, nerve wracking time, right? When we first went into COVID, like at the very beginning of March in uh-huh. uh, in uh, was that 20, 2020, 2019? When we first went into it, um, the 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 retailers and the distributors were were thinking about cutting inventory because they thought sales would be way way down, right? Because stores were being closed, um, nobody could come in and go shopping. You know, everybody was terrified. But what really happened was it exploded the online business. Oh, yeah. Especially I, I, when it came to like home repair, home remodel, right? Anything related to the home, that that sector just went insane. The home and the home office. Mm-hmm. Right? Because people started working from home who had never worked from home. So they may have had a laptop, but they didn't have dual monitors or they didn't have a webcam or they didn't have a wireless keyboard, or they didn't have a docking station. Um, and then, you know, exactly what you said, outdoor, uh, our business, one of the companies I was dealing with, our our outdoor furniture business went through the roof. Pizza ovens went through the roof, like you would not believe. <laughs> yes, like we, firearms we went up the roof as well. <laughs> and, so, and it really became who, who was willing to take the risk, but going into COVID, Everybody was talking about cutting back, laying people off. And then I would say about 90 days in, people realized, wow, this is this is going to be really actually kind of good for the market. Mm-hmm. It, it, it took the online business forward probably in, in one year, it probably catapulted it 10 years. Because people who never would shop online immediately started shopping online, especially the older generation, right? The Mm -hmm. older generation was kind of like, you know, I'm still going to go to the store. I'm going to get this, get this. But all of a sudden, you know, Best Buy and Home Depot, and they were closed. But their online business was still open, right? And so those folks that were working in their garden and all that still needed their supplies. So they started buying online, and they were kind of forced to do it. And now that they do it, that's where you get omni-channel, right? My definition of omni-channel is let the customer buy where, when, and how they want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, now you have this mixture of people love going back to the store, but they also know that they can shop online and compare prices, find out what's in stock. Um, and it, it just makes a world of difference. Yeah, and, and the convenience factor, right? Because I think a lot of people love going to the store, seeing the product, but once they find that product that they love or the right size, right, or the right brand, then the convenience of the online experience, right? Yeah. Uh, that comes home. So, but I think in order to, as a retailer, right, in order to adapt to all these changes and in order to be able to offer the best product and the best service through all these multi-channels of sales, 
it all comes to the partnerships that you have with your suppliers, with your vendors, right? Even with your employees. And, and with that, like for you, what, what are the key, the key practices in order to really build those partnerships that not only supply you in time, but that allow you to react to, to global changes like the pandemic, right? That, that allow you to shift yeah, I think relationships, especially in the supplier and in the <clears throat> manufacturer side is key. And it has to be a lot of communication, a lot of open communication. Um, you need to try to cr create win-win scenarios, right? Can't be one-sided. Um, understanding that, you know, you may have to bring in a little more inventory to get better pricing but the vendor may have to take us extended dating if you end up sitting on some inventory um, and, and working with then also working with um, the retailers to understand, you know, where, what are they seeing in, in the demand and what are the, what are the trends they're seeing? I think the data in today's world for retailers is key. Mm -hmm. um, some retailers do it much better than others, but you can identify trends today a lot quicker than you could five years ago. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's, it's really relationships. I mean, there certainly are some suppliers, some, and some manufacturers where it's less about relationship. Um, but the reality is the vast majority of the guys that are going to win this business and grow it, they got to be able to have those relationships that um, that can drive sales and, and add value for their customers. No, I completely agree, and I, and I think with that, right, talking about global and global economy and global commerce, right? What, what do you think are the key uh, aspects, right, to managing the diversity that comes with that, right? Because obviously. There's very different practices. There's just cultural aspects of how business is done in different parts of the world. And so what do you think is key in order to manage that so that it better services, right? A country like ours where there's a lot of capitalism, fast movement of inventory, a lot of quantities of inventory versus if your suppliers from Europe or other areas of the world where it's all about smaller quantities, right? Maybe higher quality product, but smaller quantities. What are the keys to really managing all those aspects, right? Because you might have suppliers from China, from Lebanon, you know, from different parts of the world. And obviously you can't treat everybody the same, right? Yeah, I think that's it. You can't treat everybody the same and you need to understand the dynamics. And then your, your merchandising team or your sourcing team, they need to understand that. Um, you know, many of the larger, many of the larger retailers have offices all around the world. Mm -hmm. They have global sourcing teams, you know, all across Asia, all across Europe. And they really do understand it. Um, pretty well you know they know they know that where they can get the mass quantity they understand now i will i'll give credit to um really walmart you know over a decade ago when they started drawing the line in the sand on some of the things they demanded like you know they would have um some they would have you know audits done on their on their manufacturers to make sure that they were abiding by the rules per se, right? No child labor, et cetera, et cetera. But as far as understanding like smaller quantities, larger quantities, I think you have to get really, you have to be really good at forecasting in today's world. And that's difficult on new products. But if, um, you know, 
if you're going to forecast um, beyond the um, manufacturer's uh, deliverables, then you have to understand that also means that you, you're not going to be able to deliver to your customers. So if you think you're going to sell, you know, 2000 pizza ovens a week um, and the manufacturer can only produce 1500 a week, the math doesn't add up. Right. So you either have to be able to either have to be able to go to that manufacturer and say, what's it going to take for you to, to expand your manufacturing 500 a week? Um, can we look at a, a different, um, a different source? Can we look at a different country? Um, but you know, it just depends if they operate in multiple countries, you know, sometimes you can get the same brand, but made in different countries. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I mean, it really comes down to just how good is your merchandising team and your sourcing team and what sort of communications they're having with those different countries. You know, I think back when COVID first started and it was like, um, you know, you would order something and then it would sit in Long Beach outside of the port for 45 days. <laughs> And, and that wasn't that wasn't the manufacturer's fault. That's just that's just what happened because all of a sudden you had thousands of containers coming over all at once. But um, you you have to be able to do that. It's all tied to communications, logistics, forecasting, um, and it's a it's not an easy puzzle. Oh yeah, and it, it's an it's a never changing puzzle, right? Because yes, so many factors <laughs> hit into it. You know, and, and one last question I would like to ask you, Jim, uh, and I ask this of everybody: if you had one piece of advice that you could give to everybody out there, right, whether it's an executive, an entrepreneur, growing their business, right, what's the one piece of advice you could give to them in order to focus for the rest of you know twenty twenty three? Um. Well, I really have. I have three rules of business, so I'll give them three three pieces. <laughs> um, one, do what's right. So do what's right for you, do what's right for your company, and do what's right for your customer. You always do what's right. It, it may not always be the most profitable thing for you, but it will gain you market share and it'll make you more profitable and it'll make your, your customers and your employees more loyal. Two, I would say have fun at your at work. Like if you can't have fun, you really need to get into a different line of work because none of us are getting any younger. And okay. if you just dread going to work every day, it, it, the results are going to be terrible. And then the last thing is, is you, you got to make money. You know, this is a business. It's not a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. You got to make money. You got to make money for the company, for the shareholders and for yourself. I've always lived by those three rules and I still stand by them today. I think even when I've ran companies, you know, those are my three <laughs> principles. If you, if you just really stick to those, I think you'll be successful. And, you know, look, don't be afraid to make mistakes, right? The, the companies that are so risk adverse that they, they don't ever really make that many mistakes. They do not grow. They stay stagnant or they slowly fade away into the sunset. You've got to swing and miss sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. I'll use a I'll use a baseball analogy. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday. So one of my favorite players of all time was Ted Williams. And Ted Williams was the last guy to hit 400 in baseball. Now that was 
60, 70 years ago. So nobody's done it since. Wow. And somebody asked him, I mean, it's amazing that you hit 400. And he goes, not really. And he said, what? And he goes, you know, hitting 400 meant that I failed six out of 10 times to do my job. He goes, but you know what I didn't do? I didn't stop swinging. Mm-hmm. I went up looking to get a hit every time. If I if I stopped swinging because I failed six out of 10 times, I would have hit 200. Yeah. So I think, you know, part of it is you, you've, you, the CEOs and these executives, they they have to not be afraid to swing and miss. They have to be able to take some chances. And it has to be mitigated. You have to understand, yeah, I mean, you're not going to risk the company's future on it, but on occasion, you're going to swing and miss and you're going to lose some money. But at the end of the day, if you want to be out there um, taking market share and growing business, you, you've, you've got to be aggressive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jim, for that piece of advice. I couldn't agree more. I think that, and I think that applies to life as well, right? Not just business, yeah. but overall life, right? You're definitely right. You have to swing in this and you have to see failure as an opportunity of growth. As an opportunity Absolutely. Growth, you know, because that's really what it is. But Jim, thank you so much for your time. We greatly appreciate it. For everybody out there, we'll have Jim's information here. If you guys want more advice or points of view from, from Jim's experience, you know, I'm sure he'll be more than happy to answer some emails or reply to some LinkedIn. And we'll talk to you guys on our next episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thanks so much for being at the Retail Corner Podcast. Thank you, Carlos. Have a great day. If you would like to be featured on our podcast, please email us at podcast at retailcorner.live or visit our website, retailcorner.live. Looking forward to having you as our guest on our podcast. And thank you so much for listening.